We began a Lenten sermon series last week, working our way through the book of Job. One of the things that makes Job so relatable is that we can all relate to his story in one way or another. If you've traveled around the sun enough times, you've come to learn that and learn that life is hard. If you've been a follower of Christ long enough, I hope you've also come to know in the midst of all of that that God is faithful. We won't fully understand every problem that we face. Job didn't either. And we can find ourselves in his story. During this series, we're going to show a three-part video of Martha Dornette. She is a longtime member of Anderson Hills, along with her husband, Stuart. She's one of our prayer partners. She teaches the Bible, and she has served this church in countless other ways. Many years ago, Martha's family experienced a very painful loss, and she's been gracious enough to share her story on these videos. This week, she shares about that loss. We pray that God will comfort you through Martha's story. Many years ago, our families were getting together in Colorado for our first ski vacation. My one brother and his family, Stuart and I and our two girls, arrived on a beautiful blue sky day in Colorado. My older brother and his family couldn't get there that day. He was a pilot and shared his plane and couldn't get it until the next day, which was Good Friday. And the day that they flew up, a horrible snowstorm came unexpectedly into the Rocky Mountains, as it does. And this was in the days before GPS and good radar and some of these tiny little airports. And all five of my family, my brother, my sister-in-law, my three precious nieces were killed instantly in a plane crash. Um, it was a lot to deal with, as you can imagine. No one knew what it was like to lose a whole family. And um, no one really knew how to deal with us and how to share our grief or how to come alongside us. We didn't know how to deal with our grief. But we did know, remarkably, our faith was strong enough, my mother and Stuart and I, we knew where our family was. And we never doubted that they were in the presence of the Lord from the moment that that plane crash happened. Their faith was bold and um, I think accelerated because their life was short. My sister-in-law, Debbie, had put a bumper sticker on her car the day before the accidents. It said, Jesus, don't leave earth without him. My little niece had left her baby doll on the steps um, with a little button that said, have a nice forever. My brother had left his plaque in his office that said, God works all things together for good to those who love the Lord. And you can imagine I wanted to take that plaque and throw it out the window. I had such anger and misunderstanding of that verse. But I do still have that plaque on my dresser and look at it every day. When you go through this kind of tragedy and you have a faith, you do find when you look back on that faith journey that God has taken you on that you have no idea where you're gonna go after something like this, but God takes you to incredible places and he gives you a firm foundation that I have seen grow and grow and grow because I've had many other challenges in life and yet I think because of that huge challenge, I have been able to plant my feet more firmly um, in God's word and I have to do it over and over because we're all weak.
Martha talks about not knowing how to deal with their tremendous grief at first, and that their friends didn't know how to deal with it either. Sometimes there just aren't any words. We never know what the future might hold. How do you respond to tragedy in this journey called life? And what is God's will for us amid tragedy? Last week, Pastor John preached a powerful message about suffering and surrendering to the will of God. He reminded us that God came among us to experience suffering in the person of Jesus Christ. And that God is faithful and he is with us in our suffering. In the first two chapters of Job, we saw how Job, a billionaire by today's standards, lost almost everything that he had. His ten children were killed in a windstorm. His sheep were burned up. His livestock stolen. His servants murdered. And lastly, his own body was covered with boils. In this grief, Job tore his robes. He shaved his head and he fell to the ground. And it says he worshipped. Job's wife had a different response. Listen to what she said. Job 2, 9 and 10. His wife said to him, Are you still maintaining your integrity? Curse God and die. He replied, You're talking like a foolish woman. Shall we accept good from God and not trouble? In all this, Job did not sin in what he said. Job does not forsake God. He keeps his integrity, but he does lament. When his three friends heard all that had happened to Job, they came to him to sympathize and comfort him. They sat on the ground with Job for seven days and seven nights, and no one spoke a word. But eventually, words did come. And so today we're going to hear the words that Job finally spoke, and we're going to study Job's lament. Job's words reach down to the depths of his soul's anguish, and they teach us the art of lamentation. You know, in the United States, we're good at a lot of different things. Innovation, progress, resilience. But grieving, lamenting, those are skills we often neglect. Our fast-paced lives, our obsession with productivity, our fear of vulnerability, all conspire against us expressing our grief and lament. And so we deaden our pain with distractions. We bury it down beneath the noise of our busyness. We crawl into things to numb our pain like alcohol or food or drugs or shopping or overworking or overplaying, all to dull our negative feelings. The influence of family, of culture, of our background shape the way we grieve. Some of us were taught when we were growing up to, to suck it up or to stuff it deep down. But we weren't made to do that. 
Our feelings have to be expressed. That is what lamenting is. In a world that often rushes right past grief, we find solace in Job's raw honesty as he wrestles with pain, loss, and the very purpose of his existence. Job 3, 1 to 10, sets the stage for our reflection. After this, after the seven days and nights of silence, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. He said, may the day of my birth perish, and the night that said, a boy is conceived, that day may it turn to darkness. May God above not care about it. May no light shine on it. May gloom and utter darkness claim it once more. May a cloud settle over it. May blackness overwhelm it. That night may thick darkness seize it. May it not be included among the days of the year, nor be entered into any of the months. May that night be barren. May no shout of joy be heard in it. May those who curse days curse that day, those who are ready to rouse Leviathan. May its morning stars become dark. May it wait for daylight in vain and not see the first rays of dawn. For it did not shut the doors of the womb on me to hide trouble from my eyes. After experiencing such extreme loss and pain, there's nothing left for Job to do but lament, mourn, grieve, weep, and wail and express sorrow. He refuses to incriminate himself falsely, and he refuses to blame or abandon God. Now, Job is not a lifeless stone. He's not hard-hearted. He's not a stiff-necked brute. He has a mind. He has a heart. And these events of his life have shredded him to the core of his being. And so he doesn't keep it in. He lets it pour out. Jesus said in Luke 6, 45, Out of the fullness of the heart, the mouth speaks. And it's time for Job to speak what's in his heart. Job's lament is not a polite whisper. No, it is a guttural cry. It's a primal scream from the depths of his being. He finally finds the words. His words echo across time, inviting us to embrace our own grief, to tear open our own hearts and pour out our pain before God. Job doesn't hold back. He curses the day he was born. He longs for non-existence. His lament is unfiltered, unapologetic. And herein lies the first lesson. We have to name our darkness because we cannot deal with what we refuse to acknowledge. Grief and sorrow demand expression and lament provides the canvas for our tears. When you think about it, we're born into this world with a cry on our lips, aren't we? 
I mean, none of us here remember back to our own first moment, the, the, but the first sound that we, we made after leaving the warm and protected confines of our mother's womb was a loud protest. For we are born into a complex and difficult world, and we enter it wailing. To cry is human. However, we aren't the only part of the created order expressing sorrow. The Apostle Paul says that the entire creation groans. Romans 8:22 says, We know that the whole creation has been groaning as in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. For you see, along with the fall of Adam, the created world was infected with the broken effects of sin. Death is the ultimate reminder that something is not right in the world. But there are other examples too. Cancer diagnoses, frailty, addictions, failed marriages, depression, fear, anxiety, relational conflict, loneliness, and abuse. These things make us groan. We don't stop crying after we are born. We continue throughout our lives because the world is broken. And while tears and sorrow are part of our humanity, there is an often neglected prayer language in the Bible meant for our travels through this broken world. Lament. Now, lament is not the same as crying. It's different. In our Judeo-Christian tradition, it's naming our pain before God. The Bible is filled with these songs of sorrow. Over one-third of the psalms in the Psalter are laments. The whole book of Lamentations weeps over the destruction of Jerusalem. Jesus himself lamented in the final hours of his life. He knew what was coming. He knew he would be beaten and crucified. He struggled to face it, but he did face it. Lamenting is different than crying because lamenting is a form of prayer. It's more than just the expression of sorrow or the venting of emotion. Lament talks to God about pain. And it has a unique purpose to build our trust in God. It is a divinely given invitation to pour out our fears, our frustrations, our sorrows for the purpose of helping us renew our confidence in God. You know, the practice of lament is one of the most theologically informed actions that a person can take. While crying is fundamental to humanity, Christians lament because we know that God is sovereign and that God is good. Christians know God's promises in Scripture, and we believe in God's power to deliver. 
We know during Lent that we are marching toward the cross, and we know that the cross is the way to the tomb, but that tomb is empty, and Jesus is alive. And yet, even as we know that, we still experience pain and sorrow. And lament is the language for living between the poles of a hard life on one hand and still trusting in God's sovereignty on the other hand. It's a prayer form for people who are waiting for the day that Jesus will return and come again and make everything right. Christians don't just mourn. We long for God to end the pain. Prayers of lament take faith. We have to trust God. We have to talk to God instead of getting angry or bitter. We have to lay out the the messy struggles of our souls and then ask again and again, as as Martha said in the video, we have to ask again and again for God to help. This keeps us close to God. It draws us to God. It tethers us to God. Laments turn toward God when sorrow tempts us to run away from God. And yet the ancient wisdom of Job beckons us. We have to learn to grieve, to sit with our sorrow, to honor our losses, and to weep without shame. Lament is not weakness, it is courage. It is the audacity to say, this hurts, and I'm not going to pretend that it doesn't. Prayers of lament interpret the world through a biblical lens. Christians lament because we know the long arc of God's plan, creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. We know the cause of all lament. It is sin. And we read in Revelation about the ending of all laments. Revelation 21.4 says, He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more, neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. So Christians not only mourn the brokenness of the world, but we also long for the day when all weeping will cease. And God promises that it will. But as we journey, we will cry. How long? King David asked that very question. Psalm 13 is David's heart-wrenching pain disclosed straight to God's ear. He says, How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say I have overcome him and my foes will rejoice when I fall. 
You can hear his groaning. How long? Give me an answer, God. These dark nights of the soul are difficult, but we have to pray. There is something powerful about naming sadness when we feel it. Grief expert David Kessler says, emotions need motion. What he means by that is when you name it, you feel it, and it moves through you. Fighting our feelings doesn't help as our body is producing those feelings. If we allow the feelings to happen, they'll happen in an orderly way, and it empowers us, and then we are not victims. King David put that all to pen and paper. His words can become our words. Praying the Psalms give our words flight to the very ears of God. Have you ever prayed the Psalms like this? Job and David teach us how to do it. Since life is full of sorrows and since the Bible is clear about the plan of God, Christians should learn to become competent lamenters. We should regularly talk to God about our sorrows and our struggles. Christians should learn to lament. We can start with some of the psalms of lament, like Psalm 10 and 13 and 22 and 27, and then move to some of the other 40-plus laments in the book of Psalms. You'll find there laments for personal grief, as well as for corporate suffering, national disaster. There are laments for moments of repentance and for when you long for things to be made right. And as you read these psalms, you'll find that certain phrases will become your own phrases. You'll probably be surprised how connected you are to the words that you read and the words that you pray, for laments tend to become personal rather quickly. Job also teaches us something else of great importance. He teaches us to wrestle with the questions of life. And Job's questions pierce the heavens. Why did I not perish at birth and die as I came from the womb? Why were there knees to receive me and breasts that I might be nursed? For now I would be lying down in peace. I would be asleep and at rest. Rest. In our grief, we too ask the questions, why, how, when? These questions are not signs of weak faith. They are the language of the wounded soul. David and Job teach us that God can handle our questions, that God can take it. And maybe we won't understand all the whys and hows and whens on this side of heaven. But God always invites us to wrestle with the divine mystery, even when answers elude us. In short, an honest question is not wrong 
or sinful. But cross-examination from a bitter, untrusting, or rebellious heart is the fruit of unbelief. God is not intimidated or shocked or displeased by our heartfelt questions. He understands our weaknesses and our fears, and he invites us to seek transparent fellowship with him. When we question God, our attitude should be that of a very humble spirit, to come to God with a trusting heart and an open mind. We can question the Lord, but we should not expect to receive an answer unless we truly believe in him and accept his sovereign perspective. God knows our hearts and whether we genuinely desire him to give us guidance through our struggle. Our inner intentions determine whether it is right or wrong to question God. Job's lament continues in verse 20. Why is light given to those in mystery and life to the bitter of soul, to those who long for death that does not come, who search for it more than for hidden treasure, who are filled with gladness and rejoice when they reach the grave? And right here, we encounter the paradox that there is light in the midst of suffering. Job grapples with the unfairness of existence, and yet even in his darkness, darkest hour, he acknowledges the gift of life. You see, lament holds both sorrow and gratitude. It allows us to weep as we cling to hope. It's similar to David. Remember the questions he had for God in Psalm 13? But listen how he closes his lament. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. And in this, in this word, there is a, a shift in David's countenance. The word but is spoken. And David shows God's love is there in the midst of his pain and his sorrow. Like Job, David worships. He says, I know God is good. God is always good, and God will always be good. He declares God's salvation, and despite his grief, his heart still rejoices because of God's never-failing love. God's love is always there. I want to give you some practical steps to help you lament this morning. And the first thing to do is to just create some space to lament. To set aside some time to lament. To find a quiet place. Maybe light a candle. Maybe play some soft music. And just allow your heart to begin to speak. Job didn't rush through his grief. And neither should we. You can also get a pen and a paper. Write out your lament. And like David, just begin to pour out your feelings, to be 
honest. God can handle your rawest emotions. Write a journal. And from time to time, look back in your journal and compare it to today and see how God has moved, see what God has done in the interim. The third thing we can do to lament well is to lament in our community. To share your lament with trusted friends or families, with your band, with your life group, in, with church. Job does exactly that. He pours out his pain to his friends who are sitting with him. Let your friends help you carry your pain. We were never meant to grieve alone. At Anderson Hills, we have a group called Grief Share. And grief is meant to be shared. As Christians, if we see a brother or sister in Christ lamenting, let them lament. If tears come, let them cry. Hold them. Don't tell them don't cry. When we ask a person, how are you doing? Let them be honest with you. Let them be real with you. When you ask it, be prepared to hear perhaps their grief. Sit and listen. Really listen to how they're doing. We can also bring our lament to God in communal worship. To let tears come as we worship. Tears are a gift from God. We worship for a reason. We worship and it is cleansing for our soul. And we come, when we come and worship together, we pour out all of who we are before our wonderful God who sits on his heavenly throne. So we come into worship and we let the sound of praise wash over us. And after singing along for a little while, we begin to feel the presence of the Lord and it begins to wash away everything that needs to be washed away. We can come into worship and ask the Lord specifically, Lord, show me what I need from worship today. We can come forward for prayer. We can ask God to help me, to cover me with what it is that we need. Worship cleanses your soul. We have to come before God's presence, to be refreshed and filled with God's goodness. For God is like oxygen. We can't see God, but we can't live without God. The Lord has given us worship not only as a comfort, but also as a weapon. We can worship while we get ready in the morning. We can do it on our, in, our, in, in our car on our way to work. We can worship as we sit quietly while listening to music play in the background. Spend some of your time this week worshiping the Lord. Ask Him to refresh you and cleanse you of any lament that you might be feeling. And lastly, we need to remember God's promises in Scripture. And one of those promises says that God has given us a helper. Romans 8, 26 says, in the same way the Spirit helps in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. I find that promise to be so comforting as we cope 
with a wide range of emotions, with extreme exhaustion and major transitions. I can remember some times in my own life when I haven't been able to find the words anymore to pray. And yet I've known that the Holy Spirit has been at work lifting the deepest concerns of my heart to the Lord. For when we groan, the Holy Spirit intercedes between our disheartened groans and the loving Father's listening ears. As the Spirit passes on our cares to the Father, He also reminds us of God's promises. The Holy Spirit points us back to the words of Jesus. Hear these words from Matthew eleven twenty-eight. Jesus said, Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? Come to me. Get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me. And work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me. And you'll learn to live freely. And lightly. Come to Jesus. Your Savior. And Lord. He knows and he is here to help you. Let us pray. Holy Lord, we thank you that you formed us in our mother's wombs and you know everything about us. And even as we've been born into a world filled with sin and confusion and sorrow and pain that you have promised to never leave us or forsake us. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you've come and walked this earth and you've cried tears like we have. You've felt pain like we have. And so you know it every bit as much as we do. And so you are able to help. We thank you, God, for your word and all the promises contained therein. We thank you even for the gift of lamenting. Lord, help us to be honest with you, to be real with you. Thank you that there isn't a word that we could utter that would shock you or put you off. Thank you for the whole, your holy word which teaches us how to do that if we will open it and only follow the example of Job and David and Christ Jesus our Lord. Thank you that in this season of Lent, you've given us a great gift of coming directly to you. Lord Jesus, we come to you now. We offer you everything we have. Thank you for holding it. Thank you for holding us. We love you. In your name we pray. Amen.